Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome Rob Jepson, the founder and CEO of Exvoyant and the host of a podcast that I love to listen to, the Sales Leadership Podcast. Definitely encourage you to check that out. Uh, welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Super excited to be with you today. I'd like to invite people who really have walked the walk or are currently walking the walk. And Rob, before his time at Exvoyant, had a lot of different roles. But the one that impressed me the most is that he spent 10 years at Zion's Bank, where by the end, he was leading over a thousand commercial bankers. So you can think of those as salespeople who are generating over $3 billion in new business annually. So uh, the, the man has definitely walked the walk. Humbled to be with you guys today. And I cannot wait to get into what's making things going in the greatest profession in the world. What's your favorite sales book of all time? And why was that so important to you? Yeah. Have you read Shoe Dog? Oh, uh, Phil Knight's book. Brilliant. That's all about sales. There's a quote in there. He's like, when I was selling encyclopedias and then when I was selling financial services, I hated my life and I sucked at it. But the minute when I started pulling shoes out of the trunk of my car at track meets, something changed in me. And what he says in there is, you know, passion is something that a customer or a prospect, it's irresistible to them. And so that's not purely a sales book, but it's this book about sales. And the things that this person tapped into from a passion perspective that drove his activities, because I really do believe sales really comes down to purpose-driven activities. And we'll talk about that, not just activities. Watching what made Phil Knight like go from a struggling somebody with an idea to someone that could fight through almost any challenge because of passion and how that drove his activities and the purpose behind them, that's a killer sales book. Yeah, I, I do. I do love that one. And, and to your point about that passion is irresistible in selling, I, I have this framework that I use for picking where I'm going to work. And it has four elements to it. But one of the elements for me is meaning in the work. And throughout the course of my, you know, my life, I'm getting not super old, but old enough that I've been through a few iterations of what meaning means to me. I've settled on something kind of simple, which is that I believe in the product enough that I would sell it to a friend or a family member and think that I was helping them. That's why I picked that book, because it really reinforced to me, Jeremy, the importance of having the first sale that happens has to happen in the heart of the salesperson. Because I have this big belief, Jeremy, that intent is more important than technique. And if your intent is to help the person that you're talking to make their life better, make their career more effective or successful, have them be more successful because they engaged with you, that just goes to my core. And it kind of validated some things that made me who I, like one of the things I'm proud of, Jeremy, is I'm, I'm an old dude. I've been in this game for a while. My very first large enterprise deal I ever did, I'll never forget, I was selling software for, to financial institutions. And they, they said, you know, no one's ever done a deal faster than six months for a large enterprise deal. And I got my first deal done in four months to a dude at the Hartford Life Insurance Company. His name is Tim Dwyer. And Tim Dwyer, 20 plus years later, is still one of my good buddies. We talk regularly. If you can't sell something that will make it so you can end up genuinely having positive relationships, it may have started because you sold something to them. But if they don't make it so you can help their life be better and they're grateful that they bought from you, you're selling the wrong thing. Yeah, your story with Tim resonates so deeply for, with me. And I had not really thought about this, but 
most of the friends that I have now were in one of two categories. They were either people that I sold to in my 20s or people I worked with. You do have to care about them to sell to them, especially as you get into enterprise deals. That's what sales love is, right? I mean, we love what we do because we genuinely, if we're authentic in what we do, the person will be pumped that they bought from you. They'll want to buy from you again. They'll reach out to you and ask you, what do you think about other things that they're buying? Because you become more than just someone who sold them something. It is the trust factor. I mean, sometimes the trust factor is also saying, hey, this is not the right product for you. Or, hey, you, know, you should really talk to XYZ about this, right? Or, or don't buy a product at all at this, in this category. Well, usually I ask people what's the first thing they ever remember selling, but you just told me the first enterprise deal you remember selling, which is actually in some ways more useful, unless you particularly have a, a fond childhood memory of selling something to your friends. If I was to go back to the childhood thing, I have my own Tom Sawyer moments of having my dad pay me to do like mowing the lawn for 10 bucks, but hiring my little brother to do it for three. And, you know, um, that's probably as much about starting my business. He, he, he still jokes with me about that. And maybe even earlier, I used to pick up rocks and use a marker when I was like four or five years old. I would color the rocks and I tried to go sell them to the neighbors. And my mom would be so humiliated that I was selling, trying to sell rocks to the neighbors that they thought was cute. The little five-year-old kid trying to sell something. I, I, I gravitate to it, man. If there was ever a profession I feel like I was born for, I feel grateful that I found it. I don't know if I've met anyone yet who's been through a college sales program. Have, have you met anyone who's, who's been through those programs? Do they seem better prepared in the interview process? There's a lot of great schools. I, one of my favorite ones is at UT Dallas, uh, led by Howard Dover. They have to actually sell stuff. So they have these different events like the golf tournament, a number of other events that they have, like a leadership conference that they sell tickets to. And their grade is based on how well they sell and hit quota, but also how they overcome objections. And they, they use a number of different tools and they're taught how to use modern sales tools. And those kids are getting, 100% of them are getting jobs. Like I have a friend at Adobe um, that has hired many of them. And he's told me those people coming out with those degrees are more advanced than people that are in their first uh, two to three years because they've already been taught how to do those skills. Well, it's almost the perfect segue because the professor of those classes is effectively serving as their sales manager. So I think it's a good segue into intentional improvement. So I guess the formal place to start with manager and rep relationships is in one-on-ones, but there's so many other things. But let's start with one-on-ones. So do you have a a philosophy on how to run those one-on-ones and and what they should be about? One-on-ones are a sales leaders and a salesperson's most underused yet most uh, valuable tool if done correctly. But let me talk about your question, what makes them work? Number one, we have to have a process about it. I mean, too many people, like one of my customers has 400 managers. And what that means for them is there's 400 ways that they do one-on-ones. And that's a problem. I mean, it's a real problem because the rep doesn't know what to expect from manager to manager or even from time to time. So 95% of the modern sales teams have some kind of a sales process. I won't tell you how well, get into how well they use their sales process. But in work with Jim Dickey, who uh, formerly of CSO Insights and now with his own company, Sales Mastery, I think he's one of the smartest sales researchers in the world. He shared with me that only 3% of sales leaders have an actual coaching process. A process 
to actually make sure that they support the sales process in ways that individualizes things for salespeople. Too many times people think, oh, well, if I'm hitting my goal, what do I need to talk to you about? Or they say, if I have a star performer, I'm going to leave them alone. Or I'm only going to coach the people who are missing. Or, or the stupidest of all the old 2005 data that said, I'm only going to move the middle. I'm going to coach the Bs and Cs and leave the As and Ds alone. Number two, you've got to individualize. Too many people have like their manager top secret spreadsheets where they say, we're going to gamify this or we're going to have you know, everyone get to this minimum threshold or, you know, well, this is what the average is. Jeremy, no one wants to walk in and just get held to some average. What a coaching situation should be about is how do we help you get, I always start with 10%. What if you had a plan that got every member of your team 10% better? What if the rep, when they walked in, knows that the whole purpose of this is I'm going to leave with a couple things I'm going to do differently that I have an expectation I'll be at least 10% better as a result. It's not going to be, well, you're below the average line. What are you going to do about it, right? And then the last thing I would say, it's got to be consistent. Too often, I coach if I have time. I don't have time for this. Or you're hitting your number, so I'll catch you next week or next month. The minute you start being inconsistent in the frequency and in the focus points and in how you follow up is the minute that you no longer are a coach. How should people be coaching? Like you get in that meeting and what are you supposed to do? I believe that the most important thing we want to do is have people create more purpose to their activities. I call it purpose-driven activities. Sometimes it means more activities and sometimes it means doing activities differently. But coaching has to be around how, how salespeople conduct activities because activities are what creates everything that we do. It's how you use your time. It's how you use your tools. And so you need a way of saying in this one-on-one, let's evaluate where we should focus our purpose around activities. Not because you're good or because you're bad, but because we want to go from where you are to where we want to be next. And so my favorite way of doing that is I've boiled it down to two things. You can tune the engine or you can tune the deal. And tuning the engine goes down to something that I didn't invent and I don't know who did. It's been around for years. I look at the sales equation. Number of opportunities multiplied by average deal size or revenue per customer, whichever metric you like, uh, multiplied by win rate divided by length of sales cycle. I can really quickly say, how much do we need to grow or how much do we want to grow? And I can start looking at those four pistons. The only four things you really have to be great at, opportunities, revenue per customer, win rate, and speed. Every activity, if you can't wrap activities around those four pistons and have a good way of, of understanding, if you're my boss, Jeremy, and I'm, and I'm me, and let's say that I'm a core performer, but I want to be a club performer, you owe it to them to be able to say, let's look at what the pistons are firing at, what the, the way the pistons fire for the club performers versus you then let's set some activities that, that are going to help the opportunity starts piston fire more or have the revenue per customer piston fire more. And that's not hard to do if you create a coaching process. To pull another book in here into the discussion, Jason Jordan and Michelle Vazana's Cracking the Sales Management Code, right? So the whole deal there is, is yeah, you're going to work backwards, which is there are some business results that you want to attain. And then there are some intermediate, I think they call them objectives that have to happen that the salesperson only has partial control over. But the one thing that the salesperson and the sales manager have control over is activity. And it's activity quantity as well as activity, I'll call it effectiveness. So getting to your specific question, like the tuning the engine, 
the activity effectiveness is is ultimate and volume is what drives those things like the the number of ops, the ASP, the win rate, and the length and the length of the sales cycle. So yeah, I'm sold on that. And and that's why if you want to be a great coach, you can't just go in there and say, what are you going to do? I mean, you have to have a way. So some people they won't have a strong enough sales process yet. And telling them to get to goal, all you're going to do is create a morale problem. But if you can say this is where you're off, you know, you have you're working your guts out, man. I mean, you're making tons of calls, but your calls are not turning into opportunities. Well, then we should start looking at the skills. If we know the activities are where they need to be, let's start looking at how are you targeting, right? Let's look at, let's listen to some calls. Let's inspect some of your emails. Let's, let's start looking at the skill on, you know, are you leveraging trigger events or are you connecting to something that gets their attention? There's, there's all kinds of things if we are getting past just activity management and we get into horsepower management. Not, I know it's a dumb, it's like a horny thing to call it, but the engine has to create horsepower. Just like if you want to be in a high-performance car that's going to win a race, that car had better have an engine that throws off horsepower. And a rep and a manager, if they can understand that there are only four pistons, Everything should support one of those four pistons. It simplifies everything, Jeremy, and it makes the one-on-one so no one feels like they're being babysat. That's one of the things you want to get away from them. Am I micromanaging or babysitting? No, we are tuning the freaking engine, man. Agreed. And I think if they understand the purpose, it's not micromanagement. I had the great honor of working for ex-McKinsey people, and, and they taught me this bright spot analysis technique. So if you've got those four pistons, those four levers, go stack rank your people and then go observe what the the top whatever 5% of the people are and go observe the bottom 5%, figure out what the delta is, and then teach everyone the, the delta. Such a valuable technique, and yet I see so few people actually doing that. You're dead on, dude. That's super good because if you have benchmark data, particularly around what the high performers do from an engine perspective versus what the low performers do from an engine perspective, and then you can compare that to where the individual is from an engine perspective. That's a badass conversation. Most leaders don't give that conversation to their reps. It's so valuable. It actually makes me think of a, another piece of data I ran across today. I was reading some data about uh, when's the best time to book a meeting, time of day. And if you just read it on the surface, the meetings that are scheduled later in the day have a much lower no-show rate than meetings that are held earlier in the day. It like progressively gets better. But the delta between the top and the bottom is like 3%. I think it's between 14 and 17%, you know, 17% no show in the morning, 14 in the afternoon. So who cares, you know? Like that's not the thing that matters to minimize no show rate. You're right. Focus more on how you get confirmations and get show rate rather than what time you schedule the stupid thing. I, I'm with you, dude. So we we talked about tuning the engine. What what does tuning the deal mean? Okay, so this is my favorite one. This is the one that's easiest for people to get behind because if you look at tuning the engine, you're talking about performance management. Tune the deal is about opportunity management. Sales processes are most of the time things that they want salespeople to do. And so I hear people use terms like exit criteria, but that's still interpreted by a salesperson as I do this, then I advance the stage. You can do everything in a sales process except for get a customer to sign the contract. The customer actually has to sign that contract. So the salesperson had better early on make sure their sales engagement is creating buyer engagement early in the process. So here's what we recommend. At every stage, we have key activities we want the salesperson to do. You need to have buyer verifiers at every stage that are only performed by the buyer. These are physical things that you get from a buyer 
that says basically the goal of the stage was successfully completed. Not because the rep says so, but because the buyer did something. There are four ways that you tune deals. You look for stalled deals. Um, we can talk about how to do that. You look for must-win deals. I think it's a really good best practice to have a must-win or two uh, with every member of your team for very strategic reasons. You look for outlier deals. I think anything that's at least 3x your average deal size, and some people go down as low as two, you should make sure you're tuning those deals. And the last one is misaligned deals where a rep says it's in stage six ready to close, but I only have verifiers down on stage three. In all of those cases, you want to make sure that you have buyer engagement at the same level as sales engagement. And think of a rowboat, Jeremy, rowing in the water. If you only row on one side, i.e. the salesperson, you're not going to go straight. You're going to go in circles. So tuning the deals, when you have the engine healthy, you got plenty of stuff going on, we celebrate it, we make sure we have a, a cadence in place that's going to keep those opportunity starts and that deal size, we have that thing going, keep that engine humming right where it is. We don't need to tune it. We just need to keep it running. Then we shift over to tune the deals because when the engine's good, let's get those deals to start moving. And my favorite thing that we talk about is win what's winnable. Win what's winnable doesn't mean win the deal. It means win what's winnable where you are. So win the stage by getting a buyer verifier. And when you start having that conversation, you set coaching goals around activities that create verifiers rather than activities for the sake of moving up the stack rank on the activity worksheet. It changes everything, Jeremy. When people start seeing activities with purpose-driven activities, this activity gets me this verifier. Damn, this strategic deal has been stalled. It usually takes me 18 days in stage. I'm at 53 days on this in stage. And in my one-on-one, we went and inspected it. We tuned the deal. We looked for the verifier. No wonder. I'm at stage four. Verifier's back at stage two. I got to go and set some purpose-driven activities that should have been done in stage three to get that verifier to get that deal alive. Can you give a couple of concrete examples of buyer verifiers that exist at different stages in the sales process? Yeah, early on is easy. They give you the commitment for time. You know, so they accept the they accept the meeting. So that should get you in the mindset. They actually accepted the meeting, right? But everybody's sales process will be different. So like, for instance, like one of the things that we do at our company is we have a really important buyer verifier that happens late in the stage with us. It's called a close plan. We want to have a close plan that's mutually built with the customer. And we don't just build it and say, this is our close plan. We want the customer to actually contribute and collaborate to the close plan and actually have an email from them that says, yes, this is the close plan. We're at a point right now where we could close this by this date, but we need to have these things happen and get these people to say, yes, and here's what we're going to do about it. You can figure out a way. That's my favorite thing what we do, Jeremy, because we help companies implement stuff like this with their sales teams. Almost every sales team I've ever worked with does not have verifiers that are 100% have to come from the customer. But in every case, when they start looking at it that way, it creates a different kind of relationship with the customer because the customer feels like they're participating in the cycle rather than having it done to them. We talked a lot about what managers should do with reps. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what should reps do to get more out of their managers? Super good question. If you're not getting developed by your manager and they aren't going to commit to that, in my opinion, I think that's worth putting a company over uh, unless there's something that you love so much that that's okay. How do you get more out of your manager? The first is I would ask them, I would reach out and say, hey, I really have a lot of ambition. I have a lot of places that I want to go. I would really love it if we could start having a consistent one-on-one. Is that something that you'd be willing to do with me? That's a really cool question. Too many times people wait for them to do it. 
You ask a sales leader that, I think you'll be surprised how appreciative they are that you would reach out to them. Take charge in those things. Say, these are the things that I'm doing that are working. These are the things that I'm doing that are not working. And I would ask for them to be really insightful and helpful to say, help me understand what it is that's making the disconnect or help me understand what takes me to the next level. The rule of thumb in a one-on-one, only 10% should be about the past and 90% should be about the future. I think of it as a basketball coach. I'm a huge sports fan. When a basketball coach calls timeout, they are not pulling stats and reading the box scores. They got 60 seconds to do next play and get you back on the floor. That is very similar to what a one-on-one is. We got 60 minutes or 30 minutes in here. I want, if it's 30 minutes, I want 10%, three minutes being about what got you here. So I got 27 about where it's going to go. You as a member and that it's your meeting as much as the manager's meeting, come prepared to talk about the future rather than just report on the past. And guess what you'll talk about? The future. Yeah, something I learned with one-on-ones that I do with my folks, I keep a simple Google Doc, right, for each person. And in that Google Doc, the the agenda gets built in there of things that come up during the course of the week. Obviously, stuff that's urgent gets tackled right away, but otherwise, we just keep a running list of stuff that comes up. But we also have an evergreen component that there are certain things I want to talk about every week, right? I want to talk about performance. I want to talk about pipeline, you know, and those things, they can't escape. How can I make that better? I guess what I would say is this. One of our deadly sins and one of the things that we found is a for sure thing. You never want to have surprises in a one-on-one. You never want to ambush with data in a one-on-one. You never want to have a gotcha moment in a one-on-one. You want to make sure that the rep is well-prepared. They know what you're going to talk about. They've had a chance to collaborate on what the agenda will be. You know, it sounds like that's what you're doing without looking at it. It sounds like you're, you're doing a great job with making sure that it's current and it's relevant, but also they have the opportunity to know what it is. So it's collaborative. Yeah. I mean, I, I very much feel like the one-on-one is theirs, right? It's, they own it. And I just, I will throw things in there that I think are high leverage and useful for them. But at the end of the day, they own it. But I think the danger in saying like the rep owns it is that the manager just shows up completely unprepared to each one-on-one and lets each rep direct what it is. And half the time they end up just shooting the breeze. You know what? That happens. And that's why it's important to have like a pretty good agenda. And like, you make me think of a video that I like to use when I talk to people. It's a classic. Are you movie buff? Or are you okay to go with old movies? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a huge movie buff. I'm, I'm sort of the creepy dude who sits in movies by himself all the time. So yeah, I can, I can go for it. I've had enough plenty of time on the road. One of my favorite things when I'm traveling by myself is I go to movies. So I'm very comfortable going to movies by myself. Uh, that's exa- You and I are birds of a feather there. That is absolutely <laughs> the thing I look forward to the most when I'm traveling. That and the food. Yes, sir. (laughs) Sounds like we need to travel together, man. So here's the movie, okay? Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's an iconic scene when he's in the classroom and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and the pizza man shows up. Remember the scene? Yeah, of course. And he says, you know, Mr. Han's like, whose pizza is this? And Spicoli pays and he's like, hey, Mr. Han, you know, you've always said this is our time. And, you know, know, you say it's your time, but I thought about it. And if I'm here and you're here, it's our time. And what better way to spend our time than having a delicious pizza together? But I use it as a training metaphor to say, listen, leaders, what are you doing to make it genuinely our time, not your time, not their time, our time, so we both know what we're going to do together. We both get value from this. It's your guys' collaborative time. It's not just you're there and you just shoot the breeze. Totally agree. 
I've heard you talk about this concept of Razor. Can you give us a high-level outline of what that is? Razor stands for Results, Activities, Skills, and Resources. You start a one-on-one with results, not because you coach to results. We're going to coach to activities. But we use results to very quickly get uh, meaningful and relevant to the rep. And there's three things. Are you hitting quota, year-to-date quota right now? If yes, are you hitting year-to-date personal aspirations right now? If yes, does your process say there's more good stuff coming? If all those are yes, you're going to have a category one conversation that we call how good can you get? That'll be a blend of tuning engine and tuning deal. We talk about, you know, you've, you've climbed the summit, you've hit Mount Everest. Now, where do you go? Let's fly to the moon. We have that conversation with your star performers on how good can you get? And I got news for you, Jeremy. Star reps love the how good can you get conversation because then they start talking about roadblock removal and all kinds of powerful things. If any of those are no, quota, aspiration, or process, we're going to come down and we're going to see where are they in the process. Process will either be strong or weak. If process is strong, that means they have a good engine, they have a good pipeline. Then the the coaching conversation goes to tune the deals. If the process is weak, the conversation goes to tune the engine. Regardless if it's category one, two, or three, how good can you get? Tune the engine, tune the deal. We finish that with setting coaching goals tied to activities, skills, or use of company resources. So the first R, Razor, starts for results. It always finishes with a change in activities, skills, or resources. You can very quickly use that to be extremely relevant to a rep and have them be excited to set a coaching goal, not because they were managed, because they understand how that goal ties them to results that matter to them. I do want to ask you the question you ask your own guests on the Sales Leadership Podcast, but I don't know that anyone ever asked you, which is what was your toughest leadership experience? The first one for me was realizing that you can't be on the pedestal. Like I was a young sales guy that was a great sales guy that became a leader. And I really thought it was about having people be like me. That was a hard one for me because I was the alpha high success guy that thought, if you can't do what I do, you're either not smart enough or you're lazy. That was super hard because that was just kind of who I was. I was wired to beat people, Jeremy. And what it did was it turned people away from me super, super fast. It was ridiculously hard to change. It required me having mentors that were willing to have really hard conversations with me that said, you have to now stop instead of you. You don't win by you being great. You win by making the people that work with and for you the heroes. And that was a fundamental change. That was ridiculously hard. Wow, this has to be the most jam-packed with actionable best practices uh, podcast yet. So I really thank you for being on. Jeremy, it was a blast. Thanks for what you do for our community. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.